Hello and welcome back for mile 15 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast presented by Run In. I am Travis, alongside as always Benjamin. How are you, buddy? I'm ready to get my pump on, man. Ready to get his pump on because we're going to talk a little strength training tonight. <laughs> specifically targeted for distance runners. Some tools you can use to be better prepared for your next race via the weight room. First though, we gotta wrap up a whole bunch of recent action in road racing, a number of record-breaking performances. So where in the world would you like to start? Let's begin in Chicago. Ah, Chi-Town. The Windy City. Mo Farah. The true wind of the city. (laughs) Is your champion in the 2018 41st Annual Bank of America Chicago Marathon. Mo wins in 2.05.11. And with that time breaks Sandre Moen's record set less than a year ago in Japan last December. I think it was the third at Fukuoka. Mo held back for a lot of this race. He was at the back of the lead pack. They even shook him a couple times. Once at around mile 20, he fell off the pack. Finally got back up into the lead group. And then in the last three to four miles, took the lead, took command of the race in classic Sir Mo fashion. Spent a lot of time looking over his shoulder and then holding on with a big move to close right before they hit the hill going up with like 800 meters to go. And he really turned it on. He had a one minute negative split for the second half compared to the first. European record holder Mo Farah. Benji, let's start here. Is he a 2020 Olympic marathon gold medal contender? He's definitely in the conversation. Well, we're talking about him right now, so you're right. Yeah, I think he's a contender. It's really cool to see him, as you were saying, negative split the race, the second half, making his move 800 out. It's reminiscent on the type of strategy that won him all of his gold medals on the track. Sure. And as he's maturing into this marathoner and getting more experience, he's taking ownership of that and playing to his strengths. So he's only going to get better and more wise when it comes to the marathon before Tokyo. So... I like him in that conversation. I think he's a contender. On the Benjamin Sessions big board of marathoners, let's do two things here. One, Mo Farah, where does he currently rank among best marathoners in the world? And two, where do you think he will be in a year and a half, almost two years at the Olympics? Will he move up your big board? I believe so. I would say currently, if we're talking about marathon racer and not necessarily the fastest marathon, Not time trialers. We're ranking marathoners. He's probably between somewhere like the 8 to 12 okay. in the world. I definitely think he's going to creep into that top five in the next year. I am going to say, I think by 2020, he is my... Wow, this is an early bold prediction. He's on the podium silver medal i like that in tokyo i know who's on your gold medal stand so go ahead who is it oh kipchoge oh i thought you were gonna say dixon chumba oh that's true who unfortunately had to step (sighs) off the course in chicago kipchoge yeah he'd be my gold medal favorite i'm saying mo second and i still think rup is 
right there, you know, coming off a great performance in Rio, and he's only going to be better. Gosh, it was so cool to see him this weekend battling back after falling off a couple times. Yeah, he, he's a gamer. He really was. Um, for the folks who didn't get to see the race, Rupp finished back in sixth, 206.21. Not far off his personal best. No, 10 seconds? Yeah, uh, a little bit more than 10, but yeah. And not far off the American record once again. And three minutes faster than last year at Chicago. He said the other guys were just better than him that day. And as we mentioned last time, I'm not sure that it's been a perfect buildup, whereas last year before Chicago, he felt strongly that it had been a really ideal buildup. I think you might see Rupp take a little bit of a time here to kind of regroup. After a year which... He went through some trials, right? He, Boston, but then bouncing back at Prague and getting ready for Chicago. I assume we're going to see him at Boston again in the spring, and I think he really wants to win there. And I think he might need a little bit of time to regroup, but he has really grown as a racer this year. Yeah, if you watch any of his previous track world championship races, when there's been a decisive move he hasn't been able to go with, Mm -hmm. there was almost this look of like hopelessness yeah. where he never tried to attack to get back or at least that's how it appeared i'm sure yeah i'm sure he was warfare but... and he was trying yeah but to see him battle back like that yeah oh, it just the endorphins are flowing watching yeah. it's the, awesome. the great moment to me is seeing him fight back a little bit was when they panned out in the coverage and mo had moved to the front and You saw really two guys starting to separate themselves, and then third and fourth right behind. This was after Galen had fallen back to like seventh or so. But you saw him creeping up on the left side of the screen and at least putting in a little fight there. And uh, at the end, based on his reaction, he had certainly left everything on the course, and, and him and Mo had an embrace at the end. Speaking of a little bit of fight. Yeah. Our boy, seconds flat team favorite parker Mm. stinson Mm. he was in the race he did race that day for about 5k okay a little no no much farther than that now that first 5k is what came back to bite him we talked about parker stinson as our prediction to be the next american you were giddy in your sub 210 predictions i was a little more cautious and believed he would fade and he did fade and he faded hard it was not a hard fade like we saw from him a year ago no. at CIM. He did PR by like four minutes. So Parker Stinson comes in at 214.29. He went through the first 5K sub 15. The newest edition of his video series on YouTube is out now with Chicago. And I went on a run this morning with friend of the show, Kyle Kugler, who also PR'd at Chicago. Congratulations, Kyle. And he mentioned he had already watched the last episode, so I caught that this morning right before work. And one of the early scenes they show is within a few miles into the race, Parker is on the back of the lead pack. He mentioned his fear of, do I run with the leaders or do I hang back with this American group that's targeting something like... 212, 213, and he wanted to be better than that. And so he went with the leaders. He says in the video, it felt really easy. It should feel really easy the first few miles of the <laughs> marathon. And it caught up with him again and he faded, but I think he's perhaps learned a little bit. He was four minutes faster. He's even joked he ran the whole thing. He didn't have to walk this time, yeah. like his incident in California. I still believe among the next group of Americans, he has as much upside as anyone. And at the Olympic trials in 2020, he's going to be a guy to watch 
to make our Olympic team. Another guy to watch, maybe the return of Meb Kofleski. That's been floated out there in some recent interviews. Meb has said, I think I could come back and run 212, 213, 214, but do I want to do the work that goes with it? There's nobody that really stands out to me as a group of three that says Meb couldn't make the team. Man, I would love that story. My favorite thing or comment he had on the matter was he said that he's the people's champ. Mm. So he was going to leave it up to the people to decide if yeah. he should train for it. So he wants to make like a Twitter poll or something like that. Yeah, and see what okay. people think about him training again and focusing I on I like that. that. I might let the people decide what I do in 2020 also. Other stories from Chicago... How about the Japanese national record? Oh my goodness, uh, and the payday. Straight cash, homie. Seguro Asako. 100 million yen. That translates to almost $900,000 American. He is the first Japanese man ever to go under 206 with his 205.50. Recently, this bounty on the Japanese national record was put up. It has now been broken twice. And they said they're going to pay up again. He was the third place finisher in Chicago. He is a member of the Nike Oregon Project, a teammate of Rupp. They don't train together a ton, a little bit. Osaka prefers to be at elevation a little more, and Rupp spends most of his time in Oregon. But what a performance there. And then our main man, Karui. He was the guy making surges early. He was the guy throwing punches, taking the lead when you looked at miles 16, 17, 18. And I thought, okay, it's Karui's day. There's a reason we both picked him. And then he faded with some, what appeared to be cramping based on the way he was behaving during the race, faded to seventh in 206.45. So maybe the early punches were just too much, kind of like they were in Boston earlier in the year. Uh, I still think we will see Karui win a marathon major in the near future. And you will also still see us predict races, even if we don't have a very good track record. However, (laughs) did say European record would happen. That did. We also saw the time being around 2.05, we thought would happen, to win this thing. And another national record there for Japan. So great action on the men's side in Chicago. Women's side, we're going to try to act like it didn't quite happen for the Americans. It was not our best performance. Gwen Jorgensen struggled to almost 10 minutes slower, I think, than you and I had thought last week. She was there through halfway, but she faded pretty hard. What were her comments after the race? Uh, There was the question she posed of, did I make the right decision to leave triathlon where I'm the gold medalist for the marathon? And she also said, though, that after any bad race, she kind of has this worst-case scenario reflection for 24 hours and then puts it away and moves on and trains. I love that. I I do love that. And that makes me like her even more. I also really liked the comments from Shalane Flanagan Mm. in a pre-New York City interview, which we're now just a few weeks away from New York. And the American women's field there is going to be fantastic. Oh, yes. Shalane said she's seen Gwen train. She knows she's developing. She knows how good she's going to be. Maybe her strength is more in the 5K and 10K at this point, at least. And I wonder about that, too. Like, Gwen Jorgensen at 10K, would she be our best bet? I mean, she jumped on the track and ran a really good 5K right away yeah, last 15, year. Yeah, 15-15. Right. So we'll see. I think that 
you're two years out and it takes a long, long, long time to get really good at the marathon. I could definitely see Jerry having her make the world championship team though next year. Yeah. That seems to be along the lines of what he's done with other athletes in mm-hmm. his corral. So we yeah. may see her representing and, the United States at a world champs. And sure. And it may just be a great stepping stone towards the marathon, but uh, he's just got a pretty good recent history with these ladies so we'd say whatever their plan is in jerry we trust elsewhere on the road oh your boy cape town julian wanders was it cape town i thought they were in durban i I don't know oh okay it was in south africa i'm pretty sure it was in durban Julian Wanders runs the European road racing 10K record 27.32. We've talked about this guy before, the Swiss phenom, all of 22 years young, training in Kenya. He breaks Mo Farah's European record there. Wait, could you say that one more time? Sir Mo. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Of 27.44, busted through that by 12 seconds. A few thoughts here. One, Wanders at 22 is an absolute stud. You've been on him since day one. I've been on his hair since day one. Gosh, so good. But now I'm just, I'm all in on this guy. It is a full send on Julian Wanders. I love where he's headed. So, one, he breaks Moe's record on the road at 10K. As an aside... I feel like that road 10K European record is a little soft. Yeah. Would you agree? For the caliber of European athletes, Yeah, yeah. I was a little surprised there by that number. But two, does he break another Mo record here soon? Mo has gone 59.32 in the half marathon. He's actually run a few seconds faster at Great North Run, which is a net downhill. Julian Wanders has gone 60.09, so he's already in the neighborhood. He did that as a 21-year-old. He was the top European finisher in Valencia this year at the World Half Marathon Championships. Does he break Moe's record in the half marathon? I think so. God, you were certain about that. Well, it's Julian Wanders. I I know. I wanted a little bit of disagreement because I actually think so, too. It's interesting. It didn't translate so much on the track this year. But he's really good on the roads. Absolutely. And he did make big jumps on the track this year. I would say this. Let me let me rephrase to suit you. He has shown a greater ability to compete, to win races, to finish at the top on the road. Okay. I as opposed to that. on the track. Okay. Clarifying. I think that's a testament to his training environment. I would completely agree with that. Being in Kenya on the rolling dirt roads, it's... Mm-hmm almost cross-country training year-round, and that just makes a good road racer. I completely agree. Um, him being 22 years old and having this much success at the half marathon, I want to know in seven years what he's doing at a full. Gosh, I know. I just I kind of want him to pump the brakes a little bit. I'm a little worried. Are we going to burn him up too quick? To that point of what is he going to do in the marathon, you know, in mile number one, we began this whole thing. One of the questions we raised was the Mo versus Moen idea. So Sandre Moen versus Mo Farah. Coach Canova, Moen's coach, has said in the past that he believes Moen to be a bit more of a marathoner than Wanders. He thinks that they're probably their their meeting point would be at about the half marathon distance and that Wanders is better at a 10K. But with that said, Moen is older also. He's yes. several years older. And so, as you point out, in time, is Wanders going to be better there? I'm going to go way down the road here and put you 
on the line oh, right gosh. now. Oh gosh, you're gonna ask October about the October 2018. I don't know if this kid will ever run a marathon, but I just want a an ex- to the tenth of a second. <laughs> Julian Wander's career PR in the first and a half marathon will be and then second in the full marathon will be. Are you commenting on this too, or is no, this just me? I am frightened by this question. I am simply putting you on the line, hanging you out to dry. Ooh. 59-22. Mm. European record holder. Which also ties Mofar as best, but it wasn't legal because of the type of course. Yeah, okay. I don't think he runs faster than Mofar ever has ran. I just think he does it in legal conditions. As far as the full marathon, yep. I think the European record will be Mo's. Because I think Mo's going to lower it. Yes, agreed. I yep. think we can see Wanders from the 205.30 to 206 flat. Okay, that's not to the 10th, but I'll take it. Point I, something something. <laughs> I do think Mo, you heard his coach say after Chicago... It could be 204, it could be 203, and I, mm-hmm. I think he's going under 205 at some point. He just point needs to line up at Berlin or Dubai. Yeah, right, or... exactly. Go to Berlin next year, Mo. You heard it here first. Wear yeah. a Seconds Flat podcast single. We know you're a listener. Stop hiding. And, Mo, let me point this out to you. I want you to know what happened in the Seconds Flat singlet in its Chicago Marathon debut. Friend of the show, our guy Chad, put up a huge... PR, I think 20 plus minutes, yes. right? So Chad, you're our man in the seconds flat singlet. Huge PR. I'm just saying, Mo, get you on the course at Berlin. It's lightning quick, right? The weather's typically good there. We get you in the right apparel. I know you're big on the arm sleeves. We'll personalize some arm sleeves if we need to, whatever it takes. I agree though. He's going to lower that marathon record. And I think that's going to be his for a little while. I'm going to go ahead and put a number on Wanders. Half marathon, I think he goes 59-18. Whoa. It's his. That and is his fast. alone. Let's move from the road to the grass. We had pre-nationals in Madison, Wisconsin. We're taking you back there. We recapped Nutty Comb a couple weeks ago. The big regular season event on the menu. Men's and women's pre-nationals. Most of the top teams in the country we're in Madison. They will be back there next month for the NCAA championships. Start with the men. We have a clear number one and two when it comes to teams. Northern Arizona University, Brigham Young University, they each won their sections of the race. BYU had an individual winner with Rory Linkletter. Who, who also won this race last yeah, year. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth, you dirty dog. <laughs> On the other side, Grant Fisher won the other race of Stanford, one of the heavy favorites. He's been uh, fifth at the last two NCAA cross championships. He's got as good of a shot as anyone this year. Wisconsin did not run Morgan McDonald, who won Nutty Comb and could be another of the favorites for an individual champion. And then on the women's side, Arkansas with an upset over Oregon in their half of the race. Oregon did have the individual champ in Jessica Hall. And Colorado rested their stars in the other race. New Mexico goes 1-2. We talked about their dominance up front. They did it again this week. They were a little stronger in the back of the pack. However, with a smaller, little bit more watered down field, because not everybody's in the same yes. race, it's a bit misleading, I think, if you look at the results. I definitely wanted to address that team situation. 
I think New Mexico pulls the win because their five is so weak that the pre-national fields being separated watered it down, like you said. And you had the absence of Colorado and Boise State, teams who put three girls in like the top 15 mm-hmm. at Nuttycomb. With teams like that, with their depth, it's going to drive that five back from New Mexico and inflate their score mm-hmm. more. So I'm not sure you can take a lot away from that as compared to the same course two weeks ago for New Mexico. I definitely wouldn't give them a number one seed. I would agree with that, and I would also say they're definitely in the mix. Oh, always. We said last time like we thought maybe four teams or so. Oregon's got to get better if they're going to stay in that mix. Yes. And I still think that Colorado, New Mexico, and Boise State are a little cut above. But Arkansas was a nice surprise. No, I don't think anyone saw it coming except their coach. <laughs> yeah. Now, speaking of coaching and this entire meet, we got a topic that's kind of got me a little frosty. Well, Snowman, hit me. We have the absence of some of the stars in this race. A lot of teams running their B teams. We're missing the head-to-head matchups because we're splitting this into multiple sections, which I understand with all the teams there. What does this mean for our sport? Because to the outsider who doesn't follow a lot of cross-country, we see this. Teams don't race a lot to begin with. Then sometimes they don't race their stars or even their whole first team. They don't race against each other head-to-head top teams very often and to add to that unless you live in wisconsin you don't get to go see the top teams much this year madison wisconsin it's a great time to be you if you're not out at this course right now and you're listening to us from madison wisconsin you've got three opportunities to watch the best cross-country runners in the country enjoy it because there are people all over the country who get zero chances based on the way these teams schedule to the average person this makes it really hard to dive in as a big fan of cross country and i think it's hurting the sport and there are some tweaks i would consider making but first ben i'd like to get your thoughts excuse my french but it upsets me (laughs) but like you said you only get a few chances to see this and i think earlier we made a hasty assumption that NAU and BYU were locks. Mm. We said this exact same thing last year. And Portland was just waiting in the back, having not raced their guys. They weren't really in the conversation. BYU perfect scored them at their conference meet because they sat out their good guys. Right, it was irrelevant. They come back and get second and beat BYU. I understand that coaches have strategies and a purpose for what they're doing. But at the same time, you're taking the fun of the sport out. Like, sure, a guy's banged up or a guy's in a hard training block, but... How many basketball games do you see where D. Rose Achilles is sore? Did you just reference Derrick Rose? I did. I think his Achilles at this point is constantly sore. I think it's a metal rod. (laughs) And I also think that that would have been an incredible reference in 2013, maybe? I'll leave. I tried to talk sports, too. Well, you know, for... The people listening here, uh, we are recording on NBA opening night. Celtics (laughs) and Sixers are just about to tip here. We got the Red Sox on the TV behind us. It's hard for me to even pay attention right now with all the action happening. My guy, Andrew Benatendi, playing well in the playoffs for the Red Sox. Your point, though, is well taken. Let's let's use this analogy for, for people who live in 2018. Yes. If Alabama football, which goes to LSU in like two or three weeks 
if they go to LSU and sit their stars, it's an absolute disaster. And even Nick Saban, the patron saint of Tuscaloosa, gets fired for that. You can't just sit everyone and lose a game midseason in college football. Now, there's differences, obviously, because in cross country, and having been a coach, I understand this, really all that matters is the end of the year. But if you want to grow attention, participation, enthusiasm, and interest, we have to make something of value before the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And the college football model Alabama loses at LSU, they might get knocked out of playoff contention. Derrick Rose injures whatever's next. Who is he even playing for now? Does he still play? Uh, it's I, the only name uh, I could think of that wasn't Michael last Jordan. last year, and I don't know where he is. He's, he's still around somewhere. Then, uh, Kyle Kugler is actually at his house working on his Achilles right he now. He is, a little physical a therapy. He might be in Minnesota. I don't I need my guy, JR. JR, phone in right now. You know the answer to this question. Anyway... While we we don't set up the Alabama-LSU scenario in college cross-country because everything's building to the end of the season. And LSU sucks at cross-country. Oh, wow, that was bold, but appropriate. I think the problem we face is not creating interest in the sport during the season, which grows it, which makes it better as a trickle-down in every level and gets eyes on this, which gets eyes on marathons and track races and everything. So I'm going to throw this out there. Here is my poorly thought-out solution, because I don't think it's going to change how people race much during the year, and I understand the training cycles we're in, and I wouldn't want to race my kids every weekend either. Should pre-nats for the men be a 10K, just like the national championship meet is? Because that is the only meet of the year that is a 10K. If we made it a 10K during the regular season, would that change what we see as far as racing at pre-nats? To be fair, regionals is also a 10K. I'm sorry. I want to step back from that comment. That That's fair. But regular season meets are not. Right. Correct. Okay. Misspoke there. And right. it's far enough back that you could conceive the idea of racing a 10K a month before yes. you have to race another one. That's plenty of time. Yeah, and is there a benefit to at least having one 10K before you go into really important postseason competition where your whole season is at stake at 10K? Yeah, because almost at that point, it's more of a competition of coaching than of athletes. The coach that is better at planning out their season so they peak for a 10K yeah. at the end of the season. Anyone can run a fast 8K. But then you have teams like NAU who run one meet and then a pre-nationals and then their conference mm -hmm. and region and nationals. I like the idea of running a 10K at pre-nationals. Just trying to throw something out there to add a little more intrigue to the regular season and so that our listeners maybe get a little more into college cross-country because it is a really fun thing to watch. And the flow track coverage, while don't always love what the flow track commentary brings to the table... The ability to be able to watch live races there is fun. And the other thing I would add is also I do think there was a, a missed opportunity strategically to run more people this weekend because you missed the chance of what if this race is a very different style race than Nuttycomb was, the other big regular season meet that we talk about. And you had your runner do either well or poorly there 
under certain conditions. If, say, the race goes out harder, like the women's race did that New Mexico really pressed early on, how do you respond? And I think that's a missed opportunity for some of the elite runners to get into those circumstances. It is training. Yeah, it's training, especially if you're younger and less experienced. Go ahead. Backtracking to something you said earlier about the people sitting out stars and Mm -hmm. their top guys. I think that's the reason the national meet will be the only one that ever gets any coverage Mm -hmm. from a source that's not flow track. What scenarios are they creating and hyping up by having a B team race an A team? Yeah, there's no great duels happening during the year. And I understand that's the, the context of the sport. Also, huge shout out to Aaron Templeton. I was just going to say that. Furman's Aaron Templeton, local guy here, with a fourth place finish, and he was right in that lead pack. And the announcers on Flow Track didn't think he was going to hang on. They didn't. They weren't sure who he was at first until they could really get an eye on the jersey. Well, they know the name now. They know the name now because he was able to hang right in there, and he was, I think, maybe two seconds off the winning time. So great performance from Aaron Templeton of Furman. Let's now dive into the other topic we wanted to get to for the night, which is strength training for distance runners. We've gotten some questions about this topic, so I thought it would be fun to give you some examples of exercises you might use and where they might fit in your training and how this might help you as a distance runner. And we've broken these down into three simpler questions um, with a couple of sub points. Let's just start with a super easy question. Why? Why strength train if you're a distance runner? To me, the number one answer is injury prevention. Ben, do you have a number one answer that you would agree or disagree with that? Oh, that's completely my number one reason as well. I thought we'd be on the same page there. And so remember that that's your why when you're choosing the exercises that you do. If injury prevention is your number one reason for doing strength training, then that should dictate our later questions, which are what and when. But focus in on what your why is here. For some folks, there could be other reasons why. There could be other number ones, or there could be also ancillary reasons that fall down the line as number two, three, four, etc. What are some other reasons why you would incorporate strength training for the distance runner? I would say the efficiency from like when you have to fight late in the race Mm -hmm. um, and you're having that muscular skeletal fatigue, these stabilizer muscles are what's going to keep you from hunching over or look like you're sitting down with a K to go in your race. Um, They just make you an overall stronger, more efficient runner. Absolutely. I would add to that that you can do work that might be development for VO2 max work on your power and explosiveness, certain muscle and neural recruitment that you can get. And those are all reasons that are great to be doing different kinds of strength training activities. But just remember where your focus is. For most folks at the longer distance end of the spectrum, like the marathon, that injury prevention, and then I would say next probably is Ben's point about that late race fatigue that you face and fighting that off. I think those are the most important reasons why, and they are going to dictate the answers to our next questions. Which, let's start with the first one. What? What are we doing in there? Yes. Am I getting big? Oh, I love when you flex like that that's god that's beautiful 
I am leaving the podcast. Now, this to me is, it's a great point. It's not really about getting big. It's not about getting rocked up. It's not about filling the sleeves. It is functional work. It is stuff of value to you. So the answer to what depends on your why focus. So let's say it's injury prevention, which we believe to be the most important aspect for most distance runners. The first thing that I would say there is if we're focusing on injury prevention, we need to think about core exercises. Well, what in the world does the core even mean, right? That means a lot of different things and starts with people thinking about six-pack abs, but it's a lot more than that. It's a lot farther down than that. Yeah, well, thank you. What would you, if, if you were going to uh, outline on the human body, the core, what region of the body would that mean to you? I'm going from shoulders to kneecap. That's pretty close to where I would be. I about agree with that. I would say shoulder blades in the back, nips in the front, down to the knees. That's pretty much that entire region. Okay, so some exercises we want to do to work on those muscles. Any favorite examples you have there? Yeah, so I know personally I have pretty weak hips historically. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like to do a lot of posterior chain work. Absolutely. Uh, There's an awesome video you can get off of coachjjohnson.com called the Myrtle Routine. Yes. And he'll take you through these different exercises such as fire hydrants, donkey kicks, different hurdle drills you can do um, just to strengthen that lower back, glute, hamstring region. These stabilizer muscles help keep me healthy for sure. Love the Myrtle Routine. That's fantastic. And some of those exercises, like um, a donkey kick, or some people call them a scorpion, or a fire hydrant motion, bridges as well are really good. Get on YouTube and just look those up. You can get videos of those so that you know what you're doing. They're great for that strength along the posterior chain. And I believe we mentioned this before when we went through some of the common mistakes that are made in cross-country season. I think that for the most part, probably about 75% of your work as a distance runner in the weight room should be on the posterior chain. To add to what you said about the strength there, I think there's a balancing aspect that comes with using the muscles, especially moving side to side and moving outside of a traditional running motion. When we run, we are moving straight through in a line and we are using the muscles that move us straight through in that line over and over and over and that can come at the expense of stuff that is say on the side muscles that we're not using so imagine you were playing basketball you're sitting down to defend you're derrick rose nba superstar so much (laughs) and you are sitting down locked in guarding somebody or for example tonight opening night celtic sixers by the time you hear this it'll have been a couple days ago regardless a defensive stopper like Celtics Jalen Brown watch the way he moves laterally and when you move laterally you are using different muscles and sometimes we kind of lose touch with those if we just run and that can be a concern for injury if we get imbalance in our muscles so I love what you're talking about there I think there's a ton of things that you can do with your body weight to be really successful in preventing injury there If you had to pick one body weight exercise to do for the upper body, what would you pick? 
Oh, no. You are perhaps the single strongest human I know. And by that, he means I have an inverted chest (laughs) (laughs) and the boniest arms he's ever seen. It's literally veins on top of where my bicep should be. Oh, but he makes it look good. My favorite upper body exercise would probably be um, pull-ups. Bingo. I'll actually do it since I'm a little weaker than most. I'll tie a resistance band around the bar. Sure. And have it low enough where it's just helping me a little bit. But this way I'm able to get in more reps than if I was just to do two. If you are working on both value to your body and also injury prevention as a runner, I'm going pull-ups as well every time. And depending on how strong you are, adapt the exercise. So you could do a traditional pull-up. Let me add this. There's more value in the overhand grip, not the underhand grip, because now you're employing the biceps a little more when you go to the underhand grip. That overhand grip is really working the back. And you have so many different ways that you could grip the bar. You could do a traditional overhand. You could go with a close grip overhand, hands closer together. You could widen it out and go with a wide grip overhand. That's really difficult. That's really going to work the back muscles. You could use a a hammer grip where you turn the hands and now they are perpendicular to the body. So you have kind of an inside grip. You need a different bar for that rather than a traditional straight bar. But you could also do all of these and more grips on a traditional bar. Or you could use resistance bands like Ben said. Or you could get on one of these assisted machines that kind of takes some of the weight away from it. Or what I love for people who are stepping up to an overhead bar is to do what are often called Australian pull-ups, where you lower the bar down and it's only a few feet off the ground and then your body leans out underneath it. So your body, as you extend your grip, is almost parallel to the ground and it's a more a rowing motion. So some people call this like a lateral row where you're pulling yourself up, but you're only pulling up a short distance and your feet are on the ground. Okay, so my heels are against the ground or I could put them on a bench to elevate them to make it a little more difficult. That might be something if you wanna look up a video of an Australian style pull-up, that's a great stepping stone as you're moving up. But I'm with you on the pull-up. It's great for core strength. It's great for muscles that actually have some value to you as a runner, right? They're going to help hold you in position where you can have good running posture. And also they are the muscles that can create some power when you really go to the arms late in the race and start to pump a little bit. Benji, well done. It's the pull-up. Fantastic. I would add a couple other things here in this injury prevention kind of functional body weight series. One are the foot drills that we've talked about before. Work different ranges of motion. These are best if done barefoot on some grass or some turf, but walk on your heels. Walk way up on your toes. Get on the far outside of your feet and then the far inside of your feet. Strengthen your foot muscles and the muscles in your lower leg to help you avoid injuries like shin splints, which are particularly prevalent among younger runners and folks who are increasing their mileage significantly. Another thing I would point out are single leg exercises. Think about when you're running. Every single landing is on a single leg with the other foot up in the air. 
So any in a series of exercises for single leg strength, which you could do something like a body weight single leg squat and just try to sit down and touch onto a bench or a seat and then get yourself back up and work that on either leg. You could do split squats. You could also do lunges and reverse lunges to work on that motion. Lunges where you have your foot elevated and drop into it. These are all really, really valuable functional exercises. With those and with the other stuff we are going to talk about, the single most important variable is form. Learn how to do the exercises right. Don't push the weight. You're better off with less weight and better form. Don't get injured in the weight room trying to prevent injury. That's a really silly way to train. Learn the proper way to do the exercises and protect your body for the future by doing them the correct way. And I think that is particularly significant with the next group of exercises I want to talk about. And I think that early on in my career as a coach, I emphasize the stuff we just talked about, Ben, the injury prevention, right? The body weight stuff, the pull-ups, like you said, the myrtle routine. It's all fantastic. And we often think of other stuff with heavier weight as being really more part of a sprint program. And that's true. Sprinters definitely do a lot of heavy weight work. But after going through some certification processes and spending a lot of time with folks who coach weights at the collegiate and professional level to runners. I think you could adopt some other lifts like the Olympic stuff to really be your explosive force-based exercises. I know you love to watch weightlifting at the Olympics. That's all I do at the Olympics. It is. And in fact, sometimes I catch you streaming videos onto your phone just of Olympic weightlifters. Yeah. So, what are your favorite Olympic lifts? What do you really tune in for? Gosh, I really love the clean and then the clean and jerk. Oh, my God, yeah. I am a Romanian deadlift fan myself. I actually do consider deadlifts to be one of the most valuable, powerful exercises that we can do. These are great examples. Cleans, clean and jerks, presses, snatches, RDLs. These exercises recruit so many muscles they do a neural recruitment aspect as well and they can get the entire system firing as you move up from learning the proper technique here toward these high weight low rep sets you can become a more explosive athlete we see like the nike oregon project they will put out videos of some people like Jordan Hesse, tiny, doing some really heavy lifting. And it has its place if done properly. And it, it's not for every distance runner. But to me, it's something that if I had more time and I could focus on some other things besides like running is always first and then the injury prevention weight stuff. You know, maybe I would spend some time with this. I used to do more of it but I was also running less. And for my goals, more mileage has more value to me than these lifts. Yeah, and it's important to remember, it's just like incorporating hard workouts into a training schedule. That's exactly right. You don't go from not running to doing mile repeats. 
you have to do your easy runs and your maintenance runs and you build to that. You don't just wake up one day and decide, I'm gonna be stronger, I'm going to the weight room and I'm gonna do Olympic lifts at my max and Yeah, I'm about to clean four hundred pounds. Yeah, no, it's it doesn't work that way. It's that's silliness. And it's also important to add to that when you get to the point of the heavy weights, it requires longer recoveries just like running more intense intervals do. So, Benjamin, hypothetical example here. You're running mile repeats, big number of them, at marathon pace. What kind of rest are we going to have? What kind of recovery? Oh, lower rest. Yeah, it's going to be not short. That strenuous. You might need, I don't know, maybe you're doing them on a minute. I was about to say a minute. Yeah, okay. Great minds. Yes. Now, you're doing mile repeats at VO2 max work Ooh. at 3K or 2 mile pace. What's your recovery I look like I need at now? least three minutes. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, for example, if, you, if those repeats were at five minutes, you might need five minutes to recover, to do them appropriately, and to do them at the amount of volume that we need. But yeah, at least three minutes probably, right? So it's the same idea here. If I am doing push-ups versus bench press three reps, four reps of heavy weight, I'm going to need much more time to recover. Now, with that said, bench press to me is not real high on my list of valuable exercises for distance running, but it's a heck of a lot higher than bicep curls. <laughs> it's, it's not as high as, say, a deadlift could be. And that's going to come in various forms. I like to, and this is going to sneak peek here into our final question of when, I find that as you move later along in a cycle and you get stronger, one thing you could do then is cut the weight back on some of these more explosive lifts, cut the weight back really low, and do them modified for speed to drive your body through the appropriate motion quickly with good form. That really works on explosion. So imagine you're doing a deadlift and you need to take the bar from the ground and drive it up through to your hips. Reduce the weight and do that quickly. Boom, work on the speed, work on that firing component. But I've jumped ahead, so we might as well just go to when at this point. That's our last thought. When. When. Right? For you, when. What does lifting look like? And that, and that when is a bit open-ended. In a big cycle or in a week, you know, what, what do you think about as to when? Well, personally, I like to keep my hard days hard. Yes. Um, so actually, I'll end up doing them on my workout days mm-hmm. uh, afterwards. Um, now, this limits some of what I can do in the weight room because I am going in with some muscle fatigue. Yep. Uh, so it's important to know your body and know whether you're on the line of overdoing something. Mm -hmm. Um, I've definitely gone in the weight room too quickly after a hard session and injured myself that way just because a muscle wasn't able to respond as quickly as it would have been if it were fresh. But I tend to do it after probably like six hours, six to eight hours after a hard running workout. So I think there is value to the keep hard days hard and easy days easy principle. I will agree with you on that, that I generally don't want to... If I'm running a couple hard days in a week, I don't want to make all the other days hard with really pushing the lifting and then 
hammering something on the bike, you know, just thinking of different examples here, and going and playing basketball for a few hours. You've got to have time for your body to recover. So I agree with you somewhat on the hard days hard, easy days easy. That makes sense. It's also a matter of why you're doing that session. That's exactly right. So there are regenerative properties of doing these strength exercises. Yes. So you can speed the recovery process by doing some of these movements. That's the beautiful rebuttal. In both our what and when segments here, you have to remember your why. And there is a regenerative property, as you said. It can be really restorative. If you did some hard work and the body is sore, I love to get in the weight room the next day and do, even if it's mainly body weight or some general strength stuff with medicine balls, also would be great. Some light free weights, as an aside, free weights over machines, 10 times out of 10 and twice on Sunday. I have no interest in getting on a machine. If you learn the proper form, you're going to work the muscles through their range of motion better on free weights. So I might get in the next day and do some stuff, some really light stuff, some some push-ups and dips and planks and what pull-ups, just different stuff like that to help kind of flush the system a little bit and help you recover from the previous day's work. With that said, you could also buttress a workout and try to extend its value. Maybe you did some tempo running and you get in the weight room right after that and try to extend what you did with that work where instead of giving yourself time after to recover, we're getting our work in right away in the weight room and the value that we got of our workout on the track or the road is getting carried over. And so we are driving ourselves, again, into some of the same principles you get from running, like a little bit of aerobic debt, uh, some lactate issues, some acidity in the system. And so maybe we can continue our workout and get good value there as well. You just got to know why you're doing it. Space it appropriately. If you're not sure why, then you probably shouldn't be doing it or you should be asking someone. We are not the only experts in the field, but we'd love to answer the questions here. Send us an email, secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. If you have strength training specific questions that you're not sure about why you're doing something or when you should be placing it in your workout, this has been one of my favorite things in learning as a coach to be better suited here. And it happened because I found a lot of strength coaches were directed more towards power events uh, in the traditional sense, like football. And we didn't necessarily have strength-based coaching directed towards a distance runner because a sprinter's regime might look different. But I do think things overlap. This is why I mentioned the Olympic lifts as an example. Sprinters are using them, and they're getting more explosive. Everything is a fractionalization of your speed. For me, my aerobic end of the spectrum is pretty high. I am better at longer distances and I can hold pace. But you're limited ultimately by how quick you can turn over. It's it's stride length and frequency are the determining factors in speed. And if we can adapt those in a different way, particularly for me as I'm aging a touch here might not be are only 47 (laughs) 
I might not be as spry as I once was as a young pup. This could be another opportunity to create some of that explosion. Now let's step back and get away from just a single session workout like you're talking about and consider it more globally. I like to emphasize weight work in my transition phases. So say I've done a marathon and I'm going through that recovery phase and I take some time off and that might not really be off, but it looks like different things. Now it's maybe you're biking or swimming or weights are perfect right here. You can start to emphasize that stuff again. And then I also like to put general strength activities in all my cycles for all races, all right? So from 100 meters to marathon, the general strength stuff like body weight exercises, some medicine ball stuff, like a uh, stability plank series can be really valuable throughout your training from day one to day 100. I also might say that the general strength may be a little more important in marathoning and we might run a spectrum where the Olympic stuff is more important for the shorter distances, but everything overlaps. What do we do as we get closer to a race, Benji? You are in your peaking phase. How does that affect what you do in the weight room? Like I was saying earlier with the comparison to the training we're doing on our feet, we act the same way with our activities in the weight room. Yeah. So we actually taper ourselves in the weight room. And like we talked before, it's the three properties of training, the density, the frequency, and the intensity. And you have to decide how to manipulate those to best suit you. I would agree with that. I think the key is you probably don't want to completely cut it out because it's been working for you throughout, but you might have to adapt the amount of work you do. So let's say you're getting in a marathon or half marathon peaking phase. If you've been in the weight room and it's been mostly body weight stuff, you're probably gonna keep doing it. You may not do as much of it. You might trim back a little bit just to get fresh, but it's also gonna be those rests in between are important particularly now if you're using actual weights, medicine balls, kettlebells, whatever you're using, I might just extend the rest in between activities. So to take it back to the track, if you're doing repeats of a kilometer, eight by a K, whatever it is, during your training, as you move to a peaking phase and start to taper your running, you might just keep that intensity because it has value to you for the race but you increase the recovery in between each repetition. And I think you could use the same principle in the weight room. And this is especially true if you look at other events within our sport, the field events in particular, we're not gonna completely cut out lifting for these guys. You're just gonna do it a little differently. Professional football. The strength coaches I heard from the New England Patriots, and I'm not sure it's their current staff, it's been a few years ago that I heard them speak then, I don't know if they have the same strength coach now. They do a lot of off-season weight work. They continue weight work during the season. They just cut it back because they're so beat up from all the physical contact. And we as runners get beat up from our bodies hitting the ground. <laughs> it's yeah. a little bit differently, not physical Literally contact with someone, but we're beating ourselves up in a different way. And so you might need to cap what you do with your weights. It might be once or twice a week. And again, as you move later on in your cycle, that might just be 
once or twice a week with fewer activities, still kind of the same general principles and more recovery built in. Yeah, with so much knowledge of running out there and examples of elites training, I think it would be almost more interesting to see Sir Moe's weight room training yeah. leading up to Chicago than his running training. Because we, we have an idea of that. We have hundreds of, of elite marathoners training logs. And you see the same things over and over, the long aerobic work, the strength intervals, the tempo runs. And sure, it's cut a little differently, but it's all the same idea. But what you don't see is the other things they're doing, like the activities in the weight room. And to speak to that point, to go back to the beginning, Julian Wanders, you have mentioned how you love how he shares a lot of his work. He's shared his strength stuff too. And I've looked at that, and there is a lot of uh, typically about two days a week of work. One is really in the weight room with weights, and really two days considering also doing some of the body weight training and core type of work that we're talking about more in, in depth. Yeah, that's a great point because I love looking through logs of elite runners to see what they're doing and just get ideas. Um, Coach Canova has said that training ideas are only limited by our lack of imagination. Yes. And it's so true. And so I love to just kind of pull ideas from all over the place and slightly adapt what I'm doing. But that's great in the weight room, too. (laughs) You can get some really fun ideas there of what people are doing to incorporate into your stuff. I would conclude by simply saying, know your session goals, know your cycle goals, diversify your exercises, and incorporate everything appropriately with your run training. That's the simplest advice that I can give you. And to overview again, remember why you are doing what you are doing. For most distance runners, the first answer to the why is injury prevention. That should then dictate the what and the when you do these activities. And there's all kinds of great body weight exercises, like Ben mentioned, Myrtle series. We went through pull-ups, all the stuff you can do for your core. Add to that the value you can incorporate with some med ball activities, some partner activities you could do there as well if you're someone that you work out with. And you can develop some stuff to make you a stronger faster, tougher, I think maybe the best description, runner when it comes to mile 24 of your marathon, mile 12 of your half, 8K into your 10K, the start of the third mile of your 5K. These are all the points where we face that question, that internal struggle of can I get over the hump Am I going to give in or am I going to dig a little bit deeper and find a reason to excel? And if we have calloused the body and calloused the mind in our training, both running and with weights, there's a better chance we're going to be successful at those moments of truth in the race. Ben, anything else you'd like to add? I think this week's been good. I um, had a lot of fun, buddy. Yeah, me too. Before we go, do you have any recommended resources for people who are trying to learn about this? Absolutely. That is a fantastic question. There are a lot of great sources within some of the running manuals that we've mentioned. So even like Joe V. Hill's Road to the Top has a basic weightlifting section specifically for distance runners that you could always go to. There are so many places on the internet you can work on this. 
but I would consider looking at strength and conditioning specific sources for more details. USA Track and Field, the Coaches Association. You could look at other coaches who are incorporating this in their running. Uh, it would be interesting to see stuff that comes out from the Oregon Project. Uh, Steve Magnus, who we've talked about before via Peak Performance. There are plenty of great resources that are run-related. And it's okay, though, to incorporate stuff that's coming from other aspects of weightlifting and sprinting. But it might be a little easier for you at home if you distill it down through a distance runner's lens and find some specifics there. It's good stuff. We want to apologize. We got some construction going on next door to the studio here. So hopefully you didn't get too much background noise tonight. We had a lot of fun. Autumn is upon us in the upstate in western North Carolina, and the running has been great recently. I know you got out there yesterday for a pretty good one. I had a long one over the weekend. I'm excited for a workout tomorrow, and we are excited to get back with you next week. So thanks for listening in. Secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us. We've had questions from all over recently. It's been a lot of fun seeing people from all parts of the country that we didn't know were listening, and we love hearing from you. This has been mile 15 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. We will see you next time. Have a great week.